Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. So welcome to the Head to Toe podcast as we move around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham. I am the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Heritage Manager. And I'm Olivia Howarth and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. And today we have made it as far as the spleen. So this I think is going to be messy because we've talked in previous episodes about how sometimes organs are looked at inconsistently by different people in different periods. They mean different things to different people and nothing is more messy than the spleen. It is an important body part, but no one can quite agree as to why. The spleen is a physical part of the body. The spleen is a disease and the spleen is a state of mind. So the spleen is on the upper left side of your abdomen. It's next to the stomach. It's behind the ribs and it contributes to the immune system. So forming antibodies. And I think that's probably about as far as we go with things that people agree on. And then we get into the messiness of the spleen. And I think actually people being really unclear for a very long time about what the spleen does is probably part of the allure of the spleen and why it then becomes a sort of metaphor or a symbol for things. So, as I say, people have lots to say about the spleen. Aristotle, Galen, Plato, Hippocrates, they've all got something to say and they all disagree with one another. Hippocrates, and when we say Hippocrates, what we mean is the sort of Hippocratic texts which were probably written by followers or those who agreed with the ancient Greek author Hippocrates. They say that the spleen draws excess water from the body. Galen, the Roman physician, says spleen removes black bile from the body. And Galen also had some ideas around how the spleen connected to skin colour and to race. Uh, Plato said the spleen cleansed the body of impurities. And Aristotle called the spleen the bastard liver. And people have spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out what the bastard liver actually means because he doesn't really make that clear, but it was taken by quite a few later people to basically mean that it does what the liver does, but less well. So the idea being the liver produces blood, the spleen produces less good blood. I did hear that some ancient people thought the spleen was sort of a a left-sided liver, so it made a sort of symmetry within the body. Again, I feel like this is now like my catchphrase or our catchphrase. It connects to humoral theory. Interestingly, humoral theory in the sort of later versions is that there are these four humours and they connect to various different attributes of people and, and ways of staying healthy. But the very earliest versions were not four. More frequently, there were three humours. And Galen thought that felt wrong. (laughs) 
It, it, that's not right because there's four ages of man, there's four seasons, there's the four elements, earth, air, fire and water. Why are there three humours? That feels wrong. And so this fourth humour, known as black bile, sort of was just basically invented. I realise it's all technically invented. And this humour becomes associated particularly with the spleen. And the weird thing about black bile is that all of the other humours are actual things. You know, obviously blood is a thing and phlegm is a thing, but black bile isn't something that the body creates. It's not something you can really point to. Unless you're very, very unwell, you are not creating black bile. So it's this made up one that then can't actually be pointed to because it's not really there. I did read that if people were passing blood in their urine and it was very dark, then maybe that would have been seen as something other than urine. So black bile. It doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound great, and it feels like surely that would be rare. You know, blood, that's something quite common and everyday, whereas the amount of people who would produce black-looking urine surely wouldn't be a common occurrence. It was maybe just people eating a lot of beetroot. <laughs> we don't know. I mean, I don't have the evidence for the quantity <laughs> of beetroot that people were eating, so you may be right. The Roman author Pliny, and he wasn't the only person who thought this, but he wrote this down, believed that the spleen stops you from being able to run fast. So just not even a sick spleen, just the spleen. And so there's various sources that show that people who were athletes who were running races would either take concoctions which they believed would diminish their spleen, or, and this is kind of gruesome, literally burn their sides with a hot iron, with the idea that it would reduce or damage their spleen, so enable them to run faster. I also read this and was absolutely horrified. I don't think, unless someone was chasing me with the hot iron, I'm not sure that it would make me run faster. There was an experiment done in 1922 where they took some lab rats and they raced them against one another. Half of them had their spleens removed and they ran faster. So there may be something in it. I'm I'm, I'm not legitimising the idea of burning your side. I'm still on the fence about it, I have to say. Something else that Pliny wrote about the spleen was that you could have it removed and you would survive, but he said you would never laugh again because great laughers always have great spleens and spleen is the source of laughter. And anger. So there's the phrase venting spleen, which is used to express an explosive level of anger. And if someone is splenetic, then they're hot-tempered or hasty in judgment. And then there's also, um, so at the beginning of Moby Dick, Ishmael describes how he sails about on his boat. And that is his way of driving off the spleen um, and regulating circulation. So in that sense, he's meaning to dispel or ward off feelings of melancholy. Spleens are everywhere. <laughs> Spleens are everywhere. That's a horrible nightmare vision. <laughs> and I mean, it is, this is part of why it's so complicated because, you know, when people say the spleen, it can be quite difficult to know what they mean because it can be an emotion, but it can also be a literal disease. So you'll see it in bills of mortality in the 1600s from London and elsewhere that, you know, a literal cause of death will be put as the spleen. And you go, well, what, what do they mean by that? Is that something that's happened to the organ, the spleen? or is it a disease that they have died of? It's the often used interchangeably with melancholy. Again, it's that connection with black bile. So, so melancholy as a state, but also melancholy as a disease. 
And in Britain, particularly in England, spleen is associated with the upper classes, particularly in the 1700s, also called the English malady. It was, generally speaking, the male equivalent of a female disease which was known as the vapours. And it's literally the idea that you have an excess of black bile, it rises to your brain, and then your brain becomes melancholy or it becomes overwhelmed with black bile. In Julius Caesar, Shakespeare uses the spleen to describe Cassius's irritable nature. Um, he says, By the gods you shall digest the venom of your spleen, though it do split you. For from this day forth I'll use you for my mirth, yea, for my laughter, when you are waspish. It's probably more dramatic than I said it. <laughs> you said it beautifully. It's just the idea of threatening people with spleen nowadays. It's not stood the test of time. You know, it's interesting to see as we look at the different body parts, the changing sort of, of priorities. So, you know, the heart goes up, the brain goes up. And the spleen, I feel like, is, is not where it once was. It's not making it onto the Greatest Hits album. I do think, though, that there must be something in the sort of etymology of the word between spleen and things like splendiferous, splendid, splendorous. Um, from what I could find, they're all to do with being bright. And I'm sure I read that Galen thought that the spleen purified the liver in some way. So I'm sure there's a link there, but I couldn't quite find it. There's the ideas in ancient Greece and Rome, which aren't entirely consistent, but there is kind of broadly, as you just said, Olivia, the idea that they are cleansing the body or cleansing the liver. They are all kind of connected to the idea of removing something bad or cleaning up in some way. But that does shift. And so when you get into the Renaissance, you're looking at kind of figures like the, there's this great Flemish anatomist, um, Andreas Vesalius. And this sort of time, you get the idea that maybe Aristotle was hinting at with his bastard liver, which is the idea that the spleen is maybe like a backup organ. It's there in case something happens to the liver and the liver can't do its job anymore, then the spleen can sort of step in as sort of a not quite as good but emergency backup organ. So that's sort of the shift that takes place is you don't need it. If it's removed, you still survive. Well, what can it possibly be doing? Well, maybe it's just there for an emergency. Going back to what you were saying about the spleen being a bastard liver or like something similar to the liver in some way, I read that because malaria causes you to have splenomegaly sometimes, um, which is an enlarged spleen, that actually because it was probably more common to have malaria or bouts of malaria in ancient Rome and Greece, what was considered a normal size of spleen might be more like the size of the liver. So there would be less of a disparity between the sizes as we know them to be now. That's interesting. I only dove into this because I was looking at the first splenectomy. There was a recorded splenectomy in Italy in 1549. It was a 24-year-old lady who had malarial splen... Um, I'm losing it. I'm losing it now. Malarial splenectomy. Um, the spleen weighed 1,340 grams and the recovery was 24 days. Not bad. And... Also, entirely understandable, but it's the words... Splenomegaly. It just doesn't sound like a real word. <laughs> I, I understand the struggle. In our case study today, we're going to look at a book, first published in 1621, which pays a great deal of attention to the spleen. 
In historical terms, the spleen was believed to regulate black bile, and so an imbalance of black bile caused melancholy, also known as the spleen. So the spleen is both an organ and a disease, and this book talks about the spleen in both of those senses. Its author is Robert Burton, and it is titled The Anatomy of Melancholy. Burton was an English church minister. He had studied at Oxford University and applied unsuccessfully several times for academic posts there. When he failed at that, he became a minister of St. Thomas's Church in Oxford. According to Burton, quote, The gall placed in the concave of the liver extracts choler to it, the spleen melancholy, which is situated on the left side, over against the liver, a spongy matter, that draws this black collar to it by a secret virtue and feeds upon it. The Anatomy of Melancholy was one of the most popular books of the 1600s. It was the result of Burton's life's work and inspired by his own struggles with melancholy. It details beliefs regarding the symptoms, causes and cures of melancholy. So, for example, according to humoral theory, melancholy, or the spleen, was associated with winter and old age and was cold and dry. If you were melancholy, you were expected to be stoic, reflective, and philosophical. There were also different types of melancholy, or the spleen. These included love melancholy, jealousy, superstition, religious or devotional melancholy, and solitude. The Anatomy of Melancholy is a large work, over 1,500 pages, some of which is a synthesis of earlier writing on the subject of the spleen but much of it was also Burton's original work, or at least his take on the writings of his predecessors. Burton, as a church minister, believed that mental illness was the devil's work. Alongside Burton's recommendations of exercise, diets, drugs and vomits as treatments, he also emphasised the importance of companionship. Quote, It is the best thing in the world to get a trusted friend to whom we may freely and sincerely pour out our secrets. In this short clip, Dr. James Kenaway explores the history of hypochondriasis. As I said at the beginning, one of the principal reasons why the stomach complaints become associated, I would say, with uh, fashionability in various ways, is relationship with the mind, with emotions and so forth. Um, and this is a very complicated subject. Um, most of the historiography has suggested that by the Georgian period, the medical consensus is that it, people favor a, physicians favored a somatic explanation. That is to say, they believed that there were physical, co physical causes in the, in the digestion that would affect the mind, that it would go, so to speak, in this direction. Um, and that certainly reflects a very ancient tradition in some ways, the hypochondriasis, um, must be hypochondriasis, big one. Um, and the idea of vapors, writing for the hypochondria, of course, is part of the abdomen, and the idea, going back to antiquities, of vapors rising up still reflected in Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy in 1621, where he talks about windy vapors ascend up to the brain, uh, which trouble the imagination and cause fear, sorrow, dullness, heaviness, many, many terrible conceits and chimeras. Um, throughout the Georgian period, I would say you see uh, at the same time, uh, often generally the same people offering somatopsychic and psychosomatic explanations for the interaction between mind and stomach. That is to say, they, they're quite happy to accept that it works in both directions, almost all of them. Uh, for example, um, and you see, yes, as I said at the top, an amazing persistence of vapors and an era of nerves. 
Thomas Willis, of course, one of the founders of, of, of the kind of, in some ways, dominance of nerves in 18th century medicine, was very skeptical about vapors per se, but said as well that fermented juices would affect the mind because of the intimate communication and mutual dependence, that's to say in both directions, between the spleen and the nerves, uh, that violent passions of the mind would affect the spleen via the animal spirits in the nerves, so it would go in both directions. Thomas Sydenham, his contemporary, wrote the hypochondria was caused by irregular motions of the animal spirits, which led to great commotions of mind and to stomach disorders. Uh, Richard Blackmore, uh, about a generation later in the 1620s, in his treatise on the spleen and vapors, or hypochondriacal and hysterical affections, was very keen to say it was nothing to do with the spleen, but the, that hypochondriacal emotional and mental symptoms were caused by a ferment in the viscera. But at the same time, he said that disturbances in the nerves caused by sudden or violent impressions Unwelcome news, sad accidents, a sudden outcry or the very opening of a door or a disagreeable or frightful idea presented to the fancy or imagination might result in convulsive spasms and contractions in any bowel. So again, it goes in both directions for Blackmore. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today, so it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. Medical recipes for the spleen are pretty confusing and pretty indicative of a general confusion in the 1600s and 1700s about what exactly the spleen was. One printed recipe book, titled The Poor Man's Physician, has a list of treatments for diseases of the spleen, which includes treatments of spleen the organ situated next to the stomach, alongside treatments for melancholy spleen caused by a humoral imbalance of black bile. Spleens could be inflamed, swollen, obstructed, pained, cold, or hardened. For pain in the spleen, it recommends enemas alongside a poultice of vinegar, oil of lilies, chamomile and wormwood. Indeed, vinegar, quote, is exceedingly commended in all diseases of the spleen, used both inwardly and outwardly. Other common spleen treatments listed were hemlock, bitter almonds, rhubarb, nettles, strawberry roots, oil of violets, green tobacco and white wine. Quite a lot of these treatments, it should be noted, were primarily used for their laxative qualities. For the melancholy spleen, also known as hypochondriac melancholy, the text recommends, An issue burnt in the leg doth purge the spleen from superfluous humours. Ambergris alone, given five or six grains at a time, every day with wine or rose water, doth clear the spirits and natural heat, and much rejoice the heart. The decoction of wine of wormwood, taken thirty or forty days together, cureth. Turpentine swallowed to the quantity of an acorn three hours before dinner, once, twice, or thrice a week. You could heat your cold spleen by eating rosemary with bread. You could soften your hard spleen by ingesting turpentine or oil of white lilies. You could reduce swelling in your spleen by eating the root of a fern called hindtongue, quote, for the space of three days while the moon is in decline. 
Or, according to one recipe for the spleen, you could, quote, take three or four handfuls of the leaves and flowers of the rose and put them in a pot with water, but let the one half of the water be blacksmith's water and let the other half be the patient's own water. Then take both herbs and flowers and put them in a bag. Then put them to the patient's side, as hot as he can endure it. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage. And we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.